This morning is the fifth that has become an annual Mother's Day sermon series on founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism. We began with Margaret Fuller, who along with Emerson and Thoreau is one of our three most important transcendentalist forebears. Her 1845 pamphlet, Women in the 19th Century, was the most, uh, the first significant work to take the liberal side in the question of women's rights since uh, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women 50 years earlier. Next, we move to the Peabody sisters, Mary Peabody, an important educator in her own right, who was married to the politician and educational reformer Horace Mann. Uh, Sophia Peabody, a talented painter who married Nathaniel Hawthorne, a novelist known for The Scarlet Letter and other similar books. Uh, And Elizabeth Peabody, the author and translator of half a dozen books who became the publisher of many transcendentalists under her own imprint. She was also the celebrated founder of kindergartens in America, so she went to Germany and brought that idea back to this country. Then we explored the life of Julia Ward Howe, about whom it was said she had six children, knew six languages, and wrote six books. She was most famous for writing the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. She was also president of the New England Women's Suffrage Association and helped found Mother's Day through her Mother's Day Proclamation for Peace that you heard Karen read earlier. Last year, our focus was Mary Moody Emerson, that her um, nephew, Ralph Waldo Emerson, called her first and best, his first and best teacher. In future years, I look forward to telling you about other founding mothers of, of Unitarian Universalism, such as Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights who was married to John Murray, the founder of the universalist half of our heritage. Olympia Brown, another universalist who in 1863 became the first woman ordained with full denominational authority. And Sophia Lyon Foz, who revolutionized 20th century UU religious education. In these history-based sermons, my intent is not to overwhelm you with names and dates. Rather, my hope is that your takeaway at least will be that as Unitarian Universalists, we stand on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking women. Retelling their stories helps us to further inscribe them into our sense of who we are and who we might become individually and collectively as we allow the lives of our forebears to inspire us to live with more courage, freedom, and compassion in our day as they did in theirs. Because, of course, the ultimate point of studying history is not to just learn about history, it's to be inspired to make history for future generations. And our focus this uh, year is Louisa May Alcott, best known as the author of the 1868 novel Little Women. How many of you have read Little Women? All right, about the same as in the early service, a lot of you. Uh, She was an influential person in her own right, and her life also intersected in fascinating ways with many of our Unitarian forebears. Louisa was the second of four daughters born to Abigail and Bronson Alcott. She was born on November 29, 1832, which happened to also be her father's 33rd birthday. And Bronson was a brilliant and innovative educational reformer, although he had a tragic flaw of being financially irresponsible. He just wasn't willing to compromise his ideals to earn that filthy lucre, as is sometimes said. And Louisa's story has often been told in a way that links her success um, pretty directly and exclusively to her father's influence. 
But in recent years, as scholars have explored Abigail's previously neglected letters and journals, it's become clear that Abigail was a vibrant writer. She was a brilliant teacher. She spent decades working to abolish slavery, ameliorate urban poverty, allow women to be educated, to vote, to participate fully in public life. She nurtured and fostered Louisa's career as a writer, encouraging her daughter rejection after rejection to persist. There was a whole lot that happened before we finally got to the success of Little Women. Louisa, in turn, dedicated all of her early work, uh, starting with her first novel at age 16, to her mother. The evidence seems clear now that her mother's influence was at least equal to, if not perhaps even greater than, her father's influence on her. So on the one hand, it was certainly the case that Louisa was taught by her father and introduced by her father to influential men, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau. On the other hand, it is also the case that Louisa was taught by her mother and introduced to women of great influence by her mother, like Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, Lydia Marie Child, and Margaret Fuller. On this point, her famous novel is actually a fascinating case study. Little Women, although nominally fiction, like a lot of fiction, tends to be thinly veiled uh, of the author's actual experience. And the most obvious parallel is that the March family in Little Women has four daughters, just like the Alcott family in, in real life. And in the book, the fictional mother, Marmee, clearly based on Louisa's actual mother, Abigail, plays quite a major role in the novel. In contrast, the fictional father, some of you may remember, is largely absent. Indeed, the text itself subtly comments on his absence when Mr. March at last makes his grand entrance in chapter 22. Uh, almost the first words devoted to him are, quote, Mr. March became invisible. And the, further, the absentee nature of the fictional father is related to the fact that Abigail's real father was often absent physically or emotionally distant as he repeatedly tried and usually failed with some new utopian scheme, leaving his wife and children at home to make do with little money. Due to the variety of Bronson's experimental schemes during the first 25 years of Louise's life, the Alcott family changed residence an average of more than um, once every two years. Indeed, there were points in which they moved so often that the sisters didn't bother to unpack. And although this itinerant lifestyle was destabilizing in many ways, there were also ways it forced Louisa to be self-reliant, to be resourceful, to be resilient. And although Louisa was too young to attend the Temple School, which was her father's most famous experiment in progressive education, there are some fascinating stories of Abigail and Bronson's parenting choices, and I'll share just two of you with me that I found particularly unforgettable since I first learned about them. The first is that they allowed the three-year-old Louisa and her four-year-old sister Anna to wander freely in Boston as only boys could do a generation before. Uh, And one night after dark, Louisa, this little intrepid explorer that she was, was unable to find her way home, and she ended up sobbing herself to sleep on the doorsteps of Boston's Bedford Street. The town crier found her there in the morning with her head pillowed on a large Newfoundland dog, who he said was with difficulty persuaded to release his protective um, guard on her. The second story is also at age three, before Louisa could swim, another time she was out exploring by herself, she wandered into the Boston Common and fell into the pond. 
uh, an African-American boy happened to be wandering by, saw her struggling in the water, jumped in, and rescued her. And as the story was told in family lore, her mother often said to her, you were an abolitionist from the age of three after that. Though her family were active abolitionists, in particular her um, Abigail's brother uh, was a Unitarian minister who was very active in the abolitionist movement. In the spirit of full disclosure, I think that generally the shift that we're seeing in some parts of our society from this kind of extreme helicopter parenting to more free-range parenting, I think there's, that's to the good in a lot of ways. Uh, but at least from my point of view, age three might be a little on the young side for wandering unsupervised in a large city, even if it was mid-19th century Boston, but... What do I know? She not only survived, but grew up to be brave and adventurous, and it's said that Louisa could run like a gazelle, she could leap a fence or climb a tree as well as any boy. And while she was not old enough, again, to attend her father's famous but short-lived academy at the Temple School, she was old enough at age 10 for her family en masse to move into Fruitlands, which was her father's biggest uh, utopian scheme. It was a back-to-the-land back kind of movement that involved about 16, fam- 16 members at its height. Although Bronson's intentions were noble, he just didn't have the needed pragmatic follow-through to farm in practice versus farming in theory, right? In the words of one critic, the prospects just aren't that good for the farmer who spends the spring months discussing philosophy in fashionable people's parlors. Bronson hoped his family would find the sort of austere lifestyle of Fruitlands to be ennobling, but that was often not Louisa's experience. Uh, To give just one example, she would often hear her family, uh, her father, um, arguing with this kind of serene confidence about the rights of all living beings. But for her, when worm-eaten apples arrived on the dinner table or the autumn wind started blowing through her thin linen tunic, which was all they could afford at that time, The generosity on all sides didn't feel generous to her. Inevitably, she wondered, were these earthly comforts that her father was always preaching against, were they really so terrible? At that time, she privately wrote in her diary something that was really heresy from the Fruitland's perspective. She wrote, I wish I were rich. I wish I was good you know, kind of, if I live to be able to live up to this moralism, and I wish we were all a happy family. Such childhood experiences later became fodder for her fictional writings, such as this passage from chapter 14 of Little Men, where she wrote, money is the root of all evil, yet it is such a useful root. (laughs) It is so useful that we cannot get on without it any more than without potatoes. I would be remiss, however, to give you the intention that young Louisa's life was all hardship and toil. Uh, It was more complicated than that. For example, there were years in which a typical day for Louisa, it began with a trip to Emerson's house, just a few minutes away, where she had free reign of his library because her father and Emerson were close friends. And then the day might continue with a nature walk with Thoreau, who would show her around and teach her about the world. Only After that, to end with a homeward trudge to a cottage where there was sometimes insufficient food, where her father was a social outcast, where her mother tried to bear up under the weight of mounting debt and disappointments, Louisa's life was often in one sense lavishly wealthy and in another perilously poor.
As is often the case with life, the reality was messy and complex. And although there's much more to say about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott, as well as of her parents, and I'll probably say more about um, them in the future, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least take a few minutes to tell you the story of how a moderately successful writer stumbled backward into writing one of the most beloved novels of all time. The initial idea for the book was not Louisa's. It was actually her editor's, and it was actually a totally a business decision that he had noticed the data on uh, increasing numbers of women um, becoming literate. And he said, I bet there's a market for that. And so he approached Louisa about, would you be willing to write, in his words, a girl's book? Louisa was neither particularly excited about the idea nor particularly confident that she was the right person to write a girl's book. She had always preferred hanging out with boys, and she wasn't sure she really knew what girls were even really like, generally. She only knew what she and her sisters were like, for the most part. So she went with that old adage, write write what you know. But the sour mood she really was in about the prospect of writing a, quote, girl's book is reflected in the opening line of the novel that some of you may remember. Christmas won't be Christmas without presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. Joe, in that sour mood in the opening line, was, of course, the character that Louisa styled herself after. But despite her skepticism, Louisa worked hard on the book. She wrote 402 pages in nine weeks. And when she delivered it to the publisher, she made perhaps the most impactful decision of her entire life. And you can think about what decision you might have made knowing the poverty that she came out of. Her editor offered either, I'll write you a check right now for $1,000 with no royalties, or I'll write you a check for $300, and that's all I can guarantee you, but you'll get a percentage of every copy sold. She actually ended up asking his advice, and there's no way of knowing the counterfactual of what would have happened if he had advised her differently. Uh, But we do know that years later, she credited a honest publisher for suggesting that she take royalties, which made her fortune. The success of Little Women really was astounding. At her death, she was the country's most popular author, and she had earned more from writing than any male author of her time. In the decade after, that after Little Women was published, she sold more than half a million books in America alone. Ten years later, her publisher had printed nearly two million copies of her books. By the mid-20th century, more than two million copies of Little Women alone were in print. And the most circulated books at the New York Public Library were Little Women and Anne Frank's Diary. Louisa's novel has been translated into scores of languages, including Flemish, Arabic, Portuguese, Urdu, uh, Persian, and Japanese. Quite impressive for a book that she wrote grudgingly and incredulously. And although in the last two decades of life she did get to live out that childhood dream of being rich, she had more money than she or her descendants could ever spend, um, in particular, she suffered debilitating, uh, say in particular, there were still struggles. Uh, she suffered from an autoimmune disorder, which 21st century doctors speculate was lupus. And while she did use her wealth to support both people in need in her own life to become patrons of them, as well as social justice causes, there were many ways in which her health prevented her from being as much of an activist as she would have liked to have been, and she did die at age 55. But she remained a lifelong advocate in particular as much as she was able to, in particular for both racial justice and gender equality. 
Now, typically I would leave the last word to Louisa, but since this is Mother's Day, I will leave the final words to the influence that, uh, that Louisa's mother, Abigail, had on both her as well as her four daughters. A woman can accomplish as much as a man. Abigail told her daughters that so often they came to believe her. Educate yourself up to your senses, she told them. Be something in yourself. Let the world know you are alive. Push boldly off. Wait for no man. Have heads full of new and larger ideas and proceed to do the great work that is given us as humanity. In that spirit, as we seek to embrace the fullness of the human condition, of all that is our lives, please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 354. We laugh, we cry. Each June, I sit down to plan the sort of preaching plan for the year, and I realize only in retrospect that I actually did three kind of biography-based sermons in a row. So uh, how many of you like biography? All right, well, good. <laughs> Maybe it's okay. Uh, that, you know, we first we talked about for National Poetry Month, which maybe I'll put earlier in April uh, next time. We did uh, Elizabeth Bishop, and then I talked about Ralph Waldo Emerson last week for our sort of Unitarian history, uh, annual Unitarian history sermon, and then obviously uh, LMA today. And uh, what I do think having spent time in all these three biographies as well as part of part of why I love biographies as well as why I love history is I every time I dive deeply into someone's life or or into some historical period there's always more than one thing that I would never believe was possible if it hadn't really happened right I think that's the thing I like most about biographies and history and uh sort of tangentially related uh have any of you been watching on Netflix the series on wild wild country Anybody? Wild, wild country? I see. Okay, two hands. Would you agree, the two of you, that it's wild? It's sort of unbelievable? Yeah, so I recommend this to you if you sort of like biography and history. It's about, some of you remember Osho, um, the Rajneesh, uh, the Rajneeshis that can, they wore red and they came from, they followed this Indian guru from India and, and bought this land in eastern Oregon. And then it gets wild from there like i'm telling you like every every like every of these six episodes there's something new that i'm like no <laughs> like it's unbelievable i mean the founder of nike's involved like they think they're like this you know free love hippie people so the oregonians are all like we're gonna have a second amendment solution so the rajneeshis buy a bunch of guns and they're like we're gonna get you know Anyway, it's off the hook. Like, you check this out, Wild Wild Country. Let me know what you think. Uh, but getting back to Louisa May Alcott, uh, uh, and I'll open this up. I, I can say some things, but let me open it up to any of you here that uh, were maybe really influenced by Little Women, because I know there, there are people that were. If you have sort of a, a, a kernel of that, of how that influenced your life, I'd be interested in hearing you share. Barb? I think I read this novel maybe 10 times when I was growing up. And the thing that I loved so much about it was my mom loved it too. Mm. And it, um, we had a chance to go visit Louisa May Alcott's home, and we both just got it. And we couldn't even tell the people we were with why we got it. But I think it's because she was so strong, so resilient, and that really mattered to me. 
There is that irony, though, that her tale of genteel poverty is what made her rich, right? There's an irony there, but yes, that is very true. Yeah. Um, so my mother gave me the book when I was around 12 or 13, and it was really life-changing. There were a lot of family things going on, but my mother was like, you read this and find your voice. And I, at difficult times in my life, I have gone back through where I really have to step up finding my voice. Yeah, because there really are, there's permission for difference there, right? I think that really is true about little women. And it's not little girls, right? It's little women. I think that's part of it. Uh, having that prominent Joe character who's so sort of gender transgressive for, especially for the mid-19th century. Yeah. Others of you that were influenced by uh, little women? I mean, to me, it's a, it's a powerful indication of how how powerful fiction can be, right? It's like, you know, you say, oh, that, that's, that's just fiction. It's not true. And I mean, fiction can be deeply, deeply true. Uh, that's how I used to contend with. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Big Fish. Uh, I recommend that as well. Uh, that, that, that's an example I used to use in sort of, in, in Christian circles as people began to wrestle with, wait, you mean there wasn't an Adam and Eve? Uh, that big fish sort of wrestles with that uh, the these big fish tails right that's what that's the metaphor there right big fish tails where the fish keeps getting bigger and uh, big fish is wrestling with it's an archetypal um, father son story between the the father used to tell all these big fish stories and then the son one day realized wait those weren't true and then he just started hating his father and ran away and he became a journalist you know just the facts and just going to report on the facts and the movie centers around the reconciliation between the father and son as the father is dying. And what you come to see is the there were actually, like with little women, there were nuggets of reality. He comes to see, oh, I see the core of that big fish. There really was a fish that was caught. It just got bigger in the, the retelling. And, and he comes to see how, but again, how deeply true fiction can be, that we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that how metaphor and archetype and fiction can all be deeply true and influential. Uh, so as we prepare to go from this place and into the days to come, certainly, you know, continue to uh, think about those, you know, landmark books like Little Women that sort of change the world in pivotal ways, but also think about what are the small ways with each person you encounter that you can make a difference to continue your journey in love, to care for one another, to care for this one earth, uh, one earth to do justice, to make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.